Futurecast. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Leadership development told through the lens of Star Trek. Your host, Jeff Aiken, is a 20-year veteran of the public and private sectors in management and leadership. He specializes in helping people unlock their true potential and is a huge Star Trek fan. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Who wants to party with the Discovery Crew? We're going to get to do a lot of that. We're also going to learn how to shortcut your way to trust and the six words that are the beginning of the end for any organization. Let's get right into it. It's the seventh episode of the first season of Discovery, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. Burnham's settling into a routine on Discovery. If you remember, she committed mutiny on her last ship and was booted from Starfleet. Discovery rescued her transport shuttle, and Captain Lorca invited her to stay on board as a science specialist. Despite wanting to serve her sentence for her crime, she's starting to find life on the ship to be really satisfying. She's proud of the ship's massive contribution to the Klingon War. Because of us, we are winning. She also shares that Lieutenant Stamets, who recently became the navigator for the ship's unique spore drive, and by navigator, I mean he gets like physically plugged into the drive itself and is an integral piece of the machinery in it. She shares that his personality has been changing quite a bit since then, and they're seeing parts of him that no one ever even knew existed. She also lets loose that I confess I find some members of my fellow crew more interesting than others. Meaning she's starting to, well, she's starting to get sweet on Ash Tyler. She wants to stretch socially, but but doesn't doesn't know how. She wants to connect with the crew, but but she just can't get herself to step out of her comfort zone. But tonight, I will face one of my greatest challenges so far. And that's a party on discovery. Bunch of the crew are dancing, drinking, just really having a good time. Tilly, Burnham's kind of awkward, allergic to everything roommate, is totally in her element. She's drinking, flirting, living it up. She tries, she even tries to get Burnham to go talk with Tyler, but Burnham's all business. She just, she just can't loosen up. Tyler pops up on a table and offers a toast to those who've fallen in the war. This is a really cool and great look at a bunch of soldiers in the middle of a war just just letting off steam. As Tyler starts to talk to Burnham, they're both called to the bridge, saved by the bell. On their way, they literally crash into Stamets and Dr. Culber. Why would you apologize for a random act of physical interaction? Um, yeah, this, this is not the Stamets that we've all come to know. Lately, he's been, um... Different. It seems that the tardigrade DNA infusion and the spore drive interactions are really starting to affect him. And, well, maybe not necessarily in a bad way. Up on the bridge, they're tracking an unidentified life form. It's a space whale. It's an endangered species. And so they're required by the Endangered Species Act to, uh, to transport it to a facility. So Lorca has it beamed on board. They start scanning it, and all of a sudden, some weird dude wearing a 
full head covering Andorian helmet steps out and just starts blasting everybody in the cargo bay. They're going down, and he's just making his way straight through the ship. They end up trapping him between some force fields. Lorca hails him. Did you miss me as much as I missed you? It's Harry Mudd, and he is pissed. He says he's here to learn what makes Discovery so special. And then once he does, he's already got the Klingons lined up to buy it from him. He says this is all about revenge. You robbed me of my dear, sweet Stella. If you remember, he, Lorca, and Ash Tyler were all locked up together on a Klingon ship. And after this statement from him, it gets weird. Oh, so I'm going to kill you as many times as possible. He clicks a button and... That's the series. Game over. It's a wrap. Thanks for joining me. Uh, wait, or is it? It's a party on Discovery. Wait, didn't we already do this? We get a we end up getting a Reader's Digest version of the party scene that we already watched once. On their way, on Burnham and, and Tyler's way back up to the bridge, this time, instead of crashing into Stamets, he rushes around the corner and gets right in their faces. I can't slow down. Don't you see what's happening? Colber intervenes as he's sounding a lot like the Stamets that we used to know here. And as Colber pulls him away, Stamets yells that all of this starts with a gormagander. It's kind of a fun word to say and a really weird thing to say, too. Well, Tyler and Burnham get to the bridge. They're tracking the same unidentified life form as before. And, uh, oh, Burnham and Tyler give each other a look as Lorca gives the order to beam it on board. They both protest, right? They know that something's up. They just don't know what. And they insist on going down to the cargo bay to check it out. I don't give a damn. I just want it done. I love Lorca here. He knows that he has to do this thing, right? But he could not possibly care less. And as far as he knows, right? Like, this is all just a little bit of nothing. This, <laughs> I mean, really, this is what authentic leadership looks like sometimes. They go down to intercept whatever may come. The creature is reading as sick. All the, all the life signs are, are, are weird and kind of unstable. Turns out, through the scans, <laughs> there's a shuttle parked inside the Gormagander. Burnham reads a transporter beam from it, and then the ship goes to black alert, and the spore drive activates. Harry Mudd is waiting at the drive apparatus when Ash Tyler and Burnham bust in. Mudd and Tyler recognize each other from their time on the Klingon ship, but Mudd says that he knows, he knows that this drive system is what makes Discovery so special but he doesn't know how to operate it. Stamets suddenly comes around from a corner and phasers mud to the ground. As days go, this is a weird one. He explains they've repeated this period of time a whole lot of times. The drive overloads, the ship explodes, and we're back to the party. This time, Stamets barges onto the bridge, interrupts Lorca, and explains that they're caught in like a 30-ish minute temporal time loop. Burnham thinks he's suffering from the spore drive stuff, but he starts finishing her sentences and matching exactly what she says word for word. This gives him the moment to grab her to come along with him while he explains everything that's been happening. 
He's figured out that Mud is using some technology to loop time so he can learn everything about the ship. The last piece, the one piece of the puzzle that's missing and that Mud doesn't know about yet, is Stamets. He's the piece that plugs into the drive, navigates it, and makes it all work. Noticing that they're almost out of time on this loop, Stamets asks Burnham to share a deep secret with him so that he can shortcut to trust in the next time loop. She whispers in his ear and he says, I'm sorry. Mud captures Lorca and has him take him to his private office. You know, the room with all of his weird weapons and stuff like that. It's the room, uh, the lab that he he kept uh, the tardigrade that he kept Ripper in. He plays, Mud plays with a bunch of Lorca's collection, keeps threatening him, stuff like that. And we get this kind of fun montage of four of the 53 times that he's killed Lorca so far. Then he grabs his big old gun off of Lorca's desk and blasts him, bringing the total to 54. And yep, you guessed it, we're back at the party. This time, Stamets gets straight to burn him at the party and just lets loose. You've never been in love. This, understandably, goes pretty awkwardly. But he explains how he knows that and why he said it. And she's immediately on board. Things don't go as planned, but they are able to share some personal stories and uh, and kind of connect. Stamets tells the story of how he and Culber met and fell in love. And they run out of time. And yep. The party starts off again. Stamets shortcuts to trust right away, gets her on board, and then sets Burnham up to dance with Ash Tyler. They want to see what he knows about Mud. Is there anything that he shared that can help them figure out how he's looping time? Apparently, when they were in, in the Klingon prison, he bragged about robbing this impenetrable Betazoid bank. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Turns out he was able to master, he was able to master all the systems, get all the timing down and everything using a time crystal. Not a lot of detail into what that is, but I think we can all kind of do the math on it, right? In this back and forth, Burnham shares that she's into Ash. And uh, they end up kissing. It's kind of sad. I mean, it's cool, right? Really happy, but it's kind of sad because they're going to forget all of this when the time loop ends. But I don't know, still pretty cool. They run over and update Stamets. Mud beats him to the bridge and lays it out. Yes, Captain Mud. Captain Mud. He beams Lorca to the brig and then shares these little purple balls that he got from Lorca's lab. They're kind of like the little things you put in your garbage disposal that smell all lemony. Except these, these don't smell so lemony. These are supposedly like the most painful way to possibly die. He throws it at Tyler and they make him slowly, painfully disintegrate him. And Ash Tyler is dead. Mud then grabs another one, threatens Saru, and, and weirdly, Stamets cuts him off. I can't watch you kill any more people. And he tells him everything. He tells him that he is the missing piece of the spore drive, tells him how it works. I mean, he tells him everything. It makes no sense to me why he decided to do this. Well, he and Stamets go to the spore drive while Burnham and Tilly meet at the Gormagander. They figure out that the time crystal is being kept on the ship inside the space whale. This gives them something 
but they need to get the timeline to reset again so that they can build from this. They need to make sure that Stamets knows everything that they know. They're not sure how to get them to reset the timeline, though, now that Mud has everything he needs. He's got control of every one of the ship's critical systems, and he knows all the secrets. Suddenly, Burnham says that she's got a plan. She goes to Mud and says that the discovery is great, right? The Klingons will pay a fortune for it. But what they really want and what they'll really pay for is her. I murdered Takuvma. I'm Michael Burnham. Salivating. Mud sees the value here. She quickly, though, grabs one of those purple things, swallows it, and dies. Upset, knowing he just lost countless, countless amounts of money, Mud decides to reset the timeline. We get the super quick Reader's Digest version of events this time. Stamets and team make some modifications to the bridge and are doing computer stuff on different computers. It all comes to a head on the bridge when Lorca straight up just says, Welcome, Captain Mud. They explain to him that they know everything. Knowing that Mud's success is an absolute certainty, they bargain for the lives of the crew, trading the ship, Stamets, and Burnham for everyone else. And Mud, Mud agrees. He sends the coordinates of the ship off to the Klingon vessel just as they leave the 30-minute window. That means Mud cannot reset the time stream. This is it. No going back. What happens now happens. The Klingon's message that they're beaming over. Mud takes Stamets and Burnham along with him, and then they decide to start poking the bear. It wasn't about Stella. After all, it was always only about you. See, they use Discovery's archives, which are a non-critical system, to learn all about Stella and her super-rich dad, Baron Grimes. Her dad, turns out, has put out a reward on Mud. They rewired the captain's chair, which is another non-critical system. So when he sent the ship's coordinates off to the Klingons, <laughs> they actually went to Baron Grimes. And just when he learns this, just when he's starting to get angry, the transporter comes on and he brings him on board. Harcourt! Baron Grimes says Mud can... You can finally make an honest woman of Stella. And they beam out to live happily ever after. And speaking of happily ever after, even though Ash Tyler and Michael Burnham don't remember their relationship from the time loops, good old Stamets told them all about it. They ride the turbo lift together in silent, pleasant awkwardness. Star Trek Discovery does a lot of things. And one of those things is definitely taking itself very, very seriously. This episode is an absolute breath of fresh air. It's fun, it's interesting, and it has real stakes, but it still advances some key character arcs. I loved this episode when it first came out, and I still really, really enjoy it. Come to Quark's Quark's Fun, come right now, don't walk, run! Are you a leader, a Star Trek fan? Do you love the lessons and strategies taught on the Starfleet Leadership Academy podcast? 
Visit jeffakin.com forward slash store to get shirts, mugs, and other great merchandise to show off where you have learned all the great strategies and lessons that are taught on the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Visit jeffakin.com forward slash store or click on the link in the show notes to support the podcast and look good doing it. I do carry a select line of unique artifacts and gemstones indigenous to this region. When I saw they'd cast Rain Wilson as Harry Mudd in the lead up to this uh, to this new TV show, I was pretty skeptical. I mean, the mud that we know from the original and the animated series is quite a bit different than Dwight Schrute or even Bill Hudley. Where's Bill? Bill? Is he okay? He's a good guy. Behold! Fish boy! And I am your biggest fan if you got that reference. But Rain Wilson is perfect in this role. He it's so much fun. He adds he adds a real edge to the TOS version of Harry Mudd, but I mean that's kind of what we do now, you know, with 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 old characters. But he's doing I mean he's doing he's doing the unthinkable. He Harry Mudd is stealing the most powerful weapon in the known galaxy really and selling it to the Federation's enemy. Steal from the company embezzle to commit fraud. I mean Wow. But even with that, <laughs> even with killing Lorca some like 56 times, it's a really fun time. I might sound kind of terrible, but I mean, but I mean, he's just, he's just really great. And I love what he brought to this character. Now, Star Trek has never been great at music. I mean, the soundtrack, the themes, those kind of stuff. Oh, Amazing, absolutely epic and, and 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 galaxy class. But I mean, I mean the music the characters listen to, right? They've never done a really good job with that. TNG was full of these performances and concerts of people playing pieces that were from Earth, only Earth really, and well over 500 years old. And then when they toss in a little bit of pop music, it's like the Beastie Boys, you know, stuff like that. In this episode, and there's nothing wrong with the Beastie Boys. Don't get me wrong, but there's something wrong with the Beastie Boys when it's the 23rd century, right? Like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. In this episode, we get Wyclef Jean singing a song that at the time in this episode, right? It's This song would have been 259 years old. And, and this is at a... This is at a party they're trying to unwind at. Like, they're trying to get crazy. You're, you're telling me there hasn't been anything in, like, even the last, I don't know, like, 50 years that would rock harder than a nearly 300-year-old tune? To Let me, to, to put this in perspective, right, that would be like us going to a party right here, right now, and listening to music from 1763. That's partying to Hayden's 12th Symphony. I mean, I get it. I do. They're, this is a TV show, and they're making this TV show for us now. But I don't know. I mean, just whenever they try and dip into music like this, it just, just kind of takes me out of the magic. But with that said, let's talk about just how cool this episode was. The trope, the concept of a time loop is well explored in Star Trek. There was 
the absolutely incredible cause and effect from TNG, uh, Coda from Voyager, and um, the temporal, uh, oh, the time, oh, uh, future tense, future tense from Enterprise. Those are great examples of time loops that they've done. I liked, I liked the approach they took to it though. In 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 this episode, they they used it like it was intentional and totally being used by a super criminal to do absolutely impossible things. When you think about it, Harry Mudd has found a way to make himself into a real-life video game. He just happens to have a save game set at the uh, at the right right at the very beginning of the party there, and he knows to quit and reload that save right before the boss cutscene starts. And the ending of this episode, it was so fun. So it was so it felt so original series, right? It was a funny way to catch the bad guy. And then they 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 close out making jokes in the transporter room. It was so good. The episode, the whole thing just had a really fun feel and it ties really well into future original and animated series episodes. Command codes verified. The team on Discovery is absolutely brilliant and wildly effective at their jobs. And while that was how they were able to pull off their big con at the end, the thing that enabled them to do all of that was trust. Trust takes a long time to build, but there are times when you have to shortcut your way to it. And that's what Stamets does here in this one. And the episode ends with a huge drop of wisdom from Michael Burnham. She started the episode questioning her place on the ship, even though she was growing more and more comfortable there. But she ends realizing that you have to break out of your routine to really find your place. And I'm going to talk through two concepts out of that. The first is the danger of being too comfortable. And the second are the six words that are the death knell for any organization. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Is there anything more valuable than trust? With it, nearly anything is possible. And without it, well, without it, you're in a really bad way. This isn't just a work thing either. I want to I want to be really clear about that. Trust extends into every aspect of our lives. We talk about trusting our coworkers, our boss, our spouse, our children. Uh, we trust different news agencies, different brands. In fact, there's a good chance you're listening to this episode right now because you have a level of trust in me. One of my favorite examples of the importance of trust <laughs> is driving. I mean, the government puts paint on asphalt, and we trust that everyone's just going to honor what that paint means. Think about that for a second. The only thing that stops our roads from just being a mess of stopped vehicles or really just a, just a, a killing field is trust that we will all pay attention to paint on the ground. It's incredible. Trust, trust really is the basis of everything. 
Now, I believe that we naturally have a default level of trust for all people. And this varies person to person based on their experiences and their culture, but we all have a place that each person we interact with or that exists in the world, we have a default level for them. And let's let's call that level, let's call it level one. And from that default level, it's then influenced and changed by, by countless factors. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into kind of a wild example, actually a super nerdy example, but see if you can follow along. So let's say you just told me about your friend that lives in San Jose named Yusuf. Before you told me about Yusuf, my trust level for him is one, right? My default level. You told me about him, you did, so that bumped it up. You said that he's a friend of yours, so that bumped it up again. Then you told me that he lives in San Jose, so it dropped a little. In this video, we're gonna go over all the things I hate about living in San Jose. I might also have implicit biases based on my assumptions with his name being Yusuf. And then there's, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, I'd say 18,462 some odd other factors that are gonna influence my initial trust level with him. So you've told me basically that he exists, that he's a friend and he lives in San Jose. And let's just say my trust level for him is at six now, right? And if your mind is where mine is right now, and that's kind of in the realm of uh, old school tabletop role-playing, then we're doing okay here, right? Basically, what we're doing right now is building trust stats. So let's fast forward. Let's fast forward a couple months. Yusuf's in town. We go out together. We get coffee with him. And based on interactions with him, my trust moves again. So he was super cool to the people working there, but was way snobby about his coffee, right? Oh, it's got to be this many degrees and the crema's got to be blah, blah, blah. So, so I started at a level of six and after spending some time with him and the pluses and minus that come from those interactions, now my trust level's at, uh, now it's at a seven. So at the same time, this is an important thing to keep in mind. At the same time, this is happening for me, right? That I'm developing my trust stats towards him. It's also happening for him. Like maybe he doesn't think that highly of our mutual friend. He might despise podcasts and he thinks that people that just order coffee, black, are uncultured yokels. So while I have him at a seven, he's got me at a negative three. But for this example, it's not that bad. So I've got him at a seven and we're going to say he's got me at a five. Fast forward a little bit more and now we're working together. As we interact, our trust levels fluctuate, but they're generally growing. We're at a point where we're comfortable letting the other person do their tasks and, and neither of us are really you know, rechecking the other's work or anything like that. We just, we know the other person's gonna do a good job. That's a, that's a pretty good place to be, I think, yeah? But now, let's say I know something that no one else on the project knows. Like, maybe I have a friend at a competitor and we're talking, and they let slip something that, if they're able to do it, will absolutely decimate us. It's the end for our, our whole company if they're able to do this thing. But the thing is, I, I can't compromise my friend. They'll definitely lose their job at a minimum, and 
Honestly, might even face criminal charges for what they've shared, you know, non-disclosure agreements, things like that. So our response needs to be extreme. Like we, they've got something on the table that can wipe us out. I've got to honor my friend and keep things private for them. We've got to really, really move the needle here. But Yusuf and I, on our trust levels, our trust range, we're sitting, I don't know, let's just say in the 15, maybe 20-ish range. It's a super, super good place to be. But in order for me to get him to agree to the things that need to happen, we really need to be closer, closer to like 30. So to totally age myself and go way geek. And honestly, if you get this reference here and you've been following along, hey, late stage Gen Xers, we rock, right? Well, this problem, let's say this problem has a Thaco of 26 and we're only rolling one 20-sided die. We got to get those bonuses up or we have to level up and we don't have the time to go level up. That means we need better bonuses that will make us the equivalent of a 30 trust. I really hope you're sticking through this analogy. I'm loving doing this thing. Thaco, by the way, to hit armor class zero. So that's your hint. The way to get to trust is to find a shortcut. We need to get to level 30. Now, I want to be absolutely crystal clear on one overriding point here. This strategy, doing a shortcut to trust, is not a strategy for building, gaining, or rebuilding trust in the long term. This is not sustainable. This is something you only do in emergency or extreme situations. Okay? So in this episode, this is what's happening with Stamets and Burnham. If you remember their relationship in context as for kings, like when they first met, they were easily at like a negative eight trust level. DTA, you stupid piece of trash. Don't ever trust nobody. And that was just four episodes ago. They're still working to build on and develop base trust. But Stamets has a 30 plus trust situation on his hands here. He needs to get from wherever they are, you know, close to one or two. They need to get from there to 30 right away. So after going through the exercise of explaining the situation to her, he asks her to share a secret. And if you watch that scene, he has to go through a lot of deep explanation to get her to listen to him and take him seriously in the first place. Once he's done that, then he actually gets to talk about the action plan. So his shortcut to trust isn't about getting to the solution. It's about cutting through that initial part when he's just convincing her to hear him out. Now, you don't need to go out and start asking the people around you to share their secrets, right? We're not hopefully caught in a time loop because this is a couple of years I sure don't want to repeat. But what you can do is learn what's important to them. How, how can you appeal to them? And how can you do so authentically and in a real way? Because authentically lining up with the things that are important to them that is how you can shortcut some trust levels. So for me and Yusuf, I know that social justice is supremely important to him. So when I try to shortcut to a higher level of trust, even temporarily, that's what I'm going to appeal to. It may sound something like, what I'm asking may sound and feel weird, but hear that this is because we can advance 
this initiative or, 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 or make this big social impact. If we don't do this wild thing that I'm proposing, we're, we're going to lose it all. Now, I know that I have been laser focused on our deliverable schedule and all of our KPIs, but that changes immediately. Our only, our sole focus is on the social justice initiatives and this weird and wild thing I'm asking you to do is going to be necessary for us to achieve that. I appealed to what matters to him and what matters to him is a part of what we're doing and our project. I gave up something that matters to me in place of his thing that matters to him. And the final critical part is to follow through. After this, I have to actually make these social justice initiatives my primary focus because shortcutting trust is a gamble. It either pays off big like it did for the Discovery crew or it can be devastating. I tell Yusuf that I'm going to change my practice and then I don't, that's going to bring my trust level down exponentially. So use this only as a last resort. And speaking of devastating, let's get to the six words that mean the end. But first, let's listen to what Burnham said to close the episode. Sometimes the only way to find out where you fit in is to step out of the routine. The routine. Oh. Having a routine and just living in it can feel so good, right? And it's a good thing to feel good like that for a minute. See, we only grow, we only develop when we stretch outside of our comfort zones. So we don't want to stay comfortable for too long. But what that doesn't mean is going from zero to 60 on something brand new just to break out of your routine. Burnham started the episode wanting to be more social but not knowing how. Through about 56 time loops or 28 hours, Stamets progresses her through a series of experiences that move her out of her comfort zone. The result is the start of a, eh, maybe, romantic relationship between her and Ash Tyler, which, arguably, without all this hairy mud stuff, without the time loop, might never have happened. So, what are you doing now that's super comfortable and routine that might be holding you back from something you want? What's something where you might need a hairy mud time loop situation to force you to try something new? Maybe, maybe you need to take on that stretch assignment at work. Or maybe it's as simple as taking a different route to the office or school. Maybe, maybe it's trying to work from home if you're able. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't have to be huge. There could be small changes that you can make right now. In fact, what, what is that small change that you feel like you could make right now that could make a massive change in your perspective and things? Okay, I've made you wait long enough. Six words, six little tiny words that are both the worst and the best possible thing to ever hear. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. That's how we've always done it. That's how we've always done it. I used to work as a lean practitioner. Those were fun times. Swoop into an organization, tear all their processes up, help them stand new ones up, then move on. My thing was running Kaizen events or rapid process improvements or what we'd call RPIs. These were usually 
three to four day events where I'd facilitate a team of subject matter experts, policy experts, and the people physically performing the work to map a process out and then improve it. We'd go through that map step by step and determine what was adding value and what wasn't, and then cut out the non-value-added steps. <laughs> it was a blast. I'd kick sessions off by establishing ground rules for the group. We gotta establish some, some ground rules. Some ground rules? Yeah, some ground rules. Okay, drafting our community agreements. <laughs> My favorite one, and one that I insisted on, was that the moment someone said a process or a step existed because that's how they've always done it, that gave me permission to change or eliminate it. Why do you enter data into that field? Oh, so it can feed this calculation over here. Okay. Why do you copy that data over here also? Oh, so it's uh, so it's in that report over there. Well, why does it need to be in that report? Because our admin looks at it. Well, why does the admin look at it? To be sure it matches what's in the first field. Well, why do you check to see that it matches? Well, there's almost always like an awkward pause right here. They're like, well, um, well, because that's how we've always done it. And bam, just cut out a whole process chain because we're not, we're not going to copy anything into a report that no one does anything with. You'll notice also that I used the five whys problem solving technique to get here. You can learn a lot more about that in the Starfleet Leadership Academy episode on DS9's Things Past. It's too late for them now. It's out of my hands. Why aren't I with them? Now, if they'd said that this other report got repackaged and sent off to some compliance board or something like that or whatever, okay, okay. Then we see if there's a way to automate the data feed or something like that. But those six words, that's how we've always done it. Send one clear signal. And that is, we don't know why we're doing it. We're just doing it. And if you have a team of people just doing things for the sake of doing them, you are well on your way on the path to complete and utter failure. If this is happening for one step or for one process, imagine how many other steps and how many other processes this is happening in. This is systemic and it doesn't take any time at all for it to influence every part of your organization. So you need to constantly question what's happening and why it's happening and look for those opportunities to break out of the routine and do things differently. You have to be sure that you and the people you work with know why they're doing things. They know where and what the value is that comes out of what they're doing. Now at Burnham, just continued what she had always done, she likely would have slipped away, becoming ineffective in her role and very unhappy with her life. But instead, she broke that routine. She tried something different and she did so with the assistance of a friend in Stamets, a friend who acted as a coach. And as a result, now we see the beginnings and a blossoming of a beautiful relationship. I want to give a shout out to David for his recent five-star review of the podcast. In his review, David said that the examples drawn out in Star Trek were there all along, but it's taken someone to demonstrate them and in doing so, bring something unique to Trek 
and leadership discussions. Thank you, David. If you haven't already, please rate and review the Starfleet Leadership Academy too. Send me a screenshot of the review and I'll give you a shout out in an upcoming episode. You can send that to me on Twitter at SFLA Podcast and on all the social media at Jeff T. Aiken. That's Jeff T as in Time Crystal, A-K-I-N. Quick programming update. At the time of this recording, there are 10 different series of Star Trek and there are three that are not plugged in to my random episode generator. You know, I'm still looking for a good name for that thing. But we have everything in there except for the animated series, Prodigy, and Picard. Well, today, that changes. Just before recording this, I added the animated series to the generator. I watched a few of the episodes here recently, and I think there's plenty for us to learn from them. Prodigy may find its way in there, depending on how it progresses. And and as of now, uh, just a few episodes into the second season of Picard, well, we'll stand by on plans for that one. Computer, what are we going to watch next time? Working. Inaccurate. Inaccurate. Data in error. Working. Unable to comply. Oh, what's this? It's the... Oh, look, how cool is that? Okay, well, the computer just sent me a message. And the next regular episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy will be the 50th episode review that I've done. 50, 50 episodes. Now, I ran a poll in our discussion group that's linked in the show notes and on the SFLA podcast Twitter on ways to celebrate that. And according to the computer, you want a deep dive into one of the captains. Well, I am totally here for that. A few weeks ago, I participated in the Captain Picard Week podcast festival that Strange New Pod hosted. I got to be a guest on the Trek Untold podcast, and I also hosted my own episode. You can find that here in the Starfleet Leadership Academy feed, or you can check out the whole video production on my YouTube channel. The link for that's in the show notes. That episode looked at Captain Picard and what makes him stand out as a leader. So given that that episode is sitting out there and that you want a deep dive and that I haven't touched the series Picard here, the 50th episode review will be a review of the entire first season of Star Trek Picard. Now, don't worry. This isn't going to be like a five-hour long podcast. <laughs> no, I, you don't want to listen to that, and I don't want to record it. <laughs> but in the arc of the season, there are some really powerful lessons in the outcomes and the consequences of leadership decisions. So in that episode, I'll talk through the plot points that happen throughout the whole season, and then we'll look at former Admiral Picard and learn leadership lessons right alongside him. And until then, Ex Astra Scientia! Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electrocast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love.
Fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab, an electric cast production. See you there. Electric acid.